Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 160, Dr. Graham Oppie on the Conflict Between Christianity and Philosophy. Dr. Graham Oppie is a professor of philosophy at Monash University in Melbourne, Australia. A leading philosopher of religion, his books include Ontological Arguments and Belief in God, Arguing About Gods, The Best Argument Against God, and Describing Gods, An Investigation of Divine Attributes. But he's here with us today to talk about his contribution to the new book, Four Views on Christianity and Philosophy. Being an atheist, he agreed to write a chapter defending a conflict model between Christianity and philosophy, and he interacts with Christian co-authors who defend what are called the covenant, convergence, and confirmation models. Dr. Oppie, welcome to the Trinity's podcast. Thanks. Dr. Oppie, were you raised in a religious home, and how did you get interested in philosophy of religion? I've actually talked about this topic before, so I apologize to anybody who's already heard this because I'm going to just repeat what I've said previously. So my parents were Methodists. I did grow up in a religious household. My father, I think, in the before I was born, probably had the ambition to become a lay preacher. My parents were both Sunday school teachers. My father was a steward in the church. So I went to Sunday school, and when I was a little bit older, I went to Sunday school and then church. On Sundays, we said grace before meals, prayed in the evenings, and so on. So yes, I had a religious upbringing. My parents, as they got older, my mother's faith remained much the same, but I really think that my father's faith waned as he aged. I don't think that was my fault. Mm-hmm. I think one really big thing that happened was that it turned out that one of the other teachers in the Sunday school was a pedophile and got jailed. That really shook my father up. Mm. When my father was dying from conversations that I had with him, I really had the sense that there was pretty much, he didn't, he didn't have any conventional religious beliefs left. Okay, so that's, that's about my background. When I was 12 or 13... I stopped believing. It was a very short process. A few weeks, I started thinking about things, just reflecting on the religious beliefs that I had and found that I didn't believe them anymore. And in my teenage years, I really enjoyed arguing with people about religion, so school teachers and peers. So I I had an interest. You never outgrew the interest in arguing about religion? No, I don't think so. So then how did I get interested in philosophy of religion? So I had a sort of nascent interest, I guess, during my teenage years. When I went to university after a false start studying medicine, I did a double degree in arts and sciences with majors in maths and physics and philosophy and history and philosophy of science. In first year philosophy, the first essay I wrote was a little essay on Descartes' ontological argument. But after that, in my entire philosophical education, There was only one course that I took on philosophy of religion, something that Bruce Langtree taught that was on miracles and arguments from design from a sort of Bayesian point of view. And we read Swinburne and some other people. And that was it. I wrote a dissertation in philosophy of language and came back to Australia. I did the dissertation in the United States. 
my wife had a job in Canberra. We went back to Canberra and I was an unemployed philosopher. And at the ANU, there was a need for somebody to teach a course in philosophy of religion. And they asked me if I could do it. And I said, sure. And I had nothing else to do. So I spent six months teaching myself philosophy of religion. And at the end of that time, I had a few publications. At that point, it wasn't really written in stone what I was going to go on and do. I was still publishing in aesthetics and philosophy of language and other areas, publishing out of my dissertation and stuff that I'd worked on in graduate school. But I got a postdoc at the ANU. The, officially, the project was to write a book on planting as epistemology. That's what I said I would do. But I never got further than what he had to say about ontological arguments. I ended up writing a book about ontological arguments. And by the time that came out, my career trajectory seemed to be more or less fixed. The job I got at Monash after that was to teach philosophy of mind. But after a few years, I managed to become the person who teaches philosophy of religion here. The person who previously taught it retired. I don't think there's been a job in advertised for a philosopher of religion in Australasia ever. There are not a whole lot of people working in philosophy of religion, and those that do arrive in that position by a kind of circuitous route. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of accidental, really, that I ended up being a philosopher of religion. I could just as well have ended up being a philosopher of mind or a philosopher of language. That's just not how history played out. I'm familiar with some of your work, Dr. Oppie, and it strikes me that you're the kind of person who, if you're going to do it, you're going to go all the way. Is that accurate, that when you started to do philosophy of religion, you just dug into it really hard, and next thing you know, you had a book on the topic? Partly. I also, though, form impossibly grand schemes that I can't carry out. So I thought when I started writing the book on ontological arguments, that will be the first in a series of books that treated of the various arguments in the same kind of way. Mm-hmm. But I realised very soon that I would never be able to write a book on cosmological arguments like the book that I'd written on ontological arguments. I managed to read pretty much all of the literature that was available on ontological arguments in English to that point, mm-hmm. I think. For cosmological arguments, that wasn't a feasible project. There's too many relevant things that you'd have to read. There's not a whole lot of topics, sort of independent topics that bear on ontological arguments. And there's some questions like, what's the analysis of begging the question? How do we understand existence? Is it, you know, is exists a predicate? Right. But there's not a lot of independent topics. For cosmological arguments, it's quite different. There's time, there's causation, there's the origins of the universe. There's just so many things. And so it wasn't feasible to try to write a comprehensive book about that, even though I, that's what I set out to do. Dr. Oppie, before we move on to more substantial things, uh, since we talked a little bit about your past, I was curious if you could say a little bit more about your deconversion. What were the issues or the factors that moved you? Was it evil or you think people don't really believe this stuff? Or what is it that caused the shift that now you think this is fictional? It's sort of hard to remember because it's a long time ago and I've spent so much time thinking about these topics and my views have changed so much. But I suspect that some of it at least was reflections about evil. Mm -hmm. I do think that that was likely something that played a big role back then. Even back then, it wasn't the only thing. I also thought that there was just a lack of evidence. You might think that facts about the nature and distribution of horrendous evil in the world is a kind of positive reason, but there was also just the absence of reasons to believe, I thought, at the time. So that also played a role. 
Dr. Oppie, in popular culture, people who don't believe in any religion are called atheists or sometimes just secular people. But your preferred term for your own worldview is metaphysical naturalism. So can you explain to us what that is and how it relates to atheism? Okay, so let's start with atheism. The way that I would use the word atheism is just the claim that there are no gods. That would be my preferred way of characterizing atheism. I would use maybe the term irreligion or something like that for what more commonly, at least in some cultures, gets called atheism, the rejection of religion. Mm -hmm. And it's understandable that these things go together if the prevalent religion is theistic, then atheism is rejection of the religion that people have hereabouts. But they are different. You could be irreligious but still be a theist. You could You could also be religious and an atheist. So there are certainly some types of Buddhism, for example, are clearly atheistic. There are no gods, but it's still plausible that those types of Buddhism are religion Mm -hmm. as well. Yeah. So atheism also is a negative label. It just says something about what a certain kind of theory or worldview isn't, right? What you don't get is a commitment to gods. I want to use the words metaphysical naturalism to refer to a positive view, a view about what there is. That's part of the reason why I want to insist on that label. There are many different types of views that get called naturalist or naturalistic. And I think that perhaps what many of them have in common is just one part of the various commitments that I want to include under the label myself. So I think the bit that lots of the views have in common is just that causal reality is natural reality. Now, I need to explain what that means. The easiest way to think about this, I think, maybe there'll be problems with this, but I think if you're a theist and you're wondering what a naturalist believes, well, think about your view. You think in the beginning there's God and God makes another realm, causes Mm -hmm. there to come into existence another realm that includes our universe, may include other things as well. And you think of God as having various causal roles. So perhaps you think that God's required to sustain this other realm in existence. Perhaps you think that God also occasionally has to make small adjustments in this realm. So that's where miracles come into the picture and so on. What naturalists do is they say, well, I more or less accept that picture, but I'm going to take a few things away. So I'm going to remove God from the picture and then the various things that God does. So there's no separate thing that sustains the universe in existence. There are no miracles. If you think that there are angels, messengers from God, well, there are no angels and so on. And what you're left with is the content of the naturalist view. They're the things that a naturalist is committed to. That's a kind of rough idea about a common commitment of naturalist views. Now, that's not all, because taking just that much won't get you to irreligion 
all it will get you to perhaps is the rejection of the Abrahamic religions and maybe some versions of Hinduism, Buddhism Mm -hmm. and other views on which there are gods. The other commitments that are important, I think, one is that the only minded entities that there are, the only kinds of things that perceive, feel and in some cases think and reason, biologically evolved organisms. At the moment, the only ones we know about are on our Earth. They might be the only ones that there are. It's also possible in the future that maybe there'll be another kind of entity artificially minded robots or something like that. But at the moment, that's not something that we have. So the way that I'd sum this up is that minds are late and local and they belong to particular organisms. Now, that isn't just another reason for thinking that there are no gods. It also rules out reincarnation as well. So it rules out something that you get in Buddhist and Hindu theories where there's a sort of continuity between the mindedness of one organism and another, perhaps in a very long historical chain extending way back into the past. That's clearly not inconsistent with the first naturalistic commitment that causal reality is natural reality. Whether you want to think of this as just defining what I think as opposed to being a kind of commitment that we should foist on naturalists depends on how you want to use the word. So there are plenty of people who think, for example, that if you think that the universe has a mind, so you're a a pantheist, that that's consistent with naturalism. It's not Mm -hmm. consistent with the kind of worldview that I want to accept. Sorry, the kind of worldview that I have. Mm -hmm. Third thing which I think is also important and is another factor that weighs when you're thinking about things like pantheism or panentheism or views like that is that I don't think that there's anything that's worthy of worship. And I think that's another important commitment. So, okay, so there's three things. There's a fourth thing which we're going to talk about maybe again a bit later on, which is so far I've just talked about causal reality. I haven't said anything, for example, about ethics and values people who call themselves naturalists vary enormously in their views about this. The kind of view that I like is a kind of virtue ethics approach. So that's something else that will be in the picture. But maybe that's enough to give you an idea about what I'm talking about when I'm talking about my metaphysical naturalism. It's a positive sort of comprehensive view with those sorts of elements in it. One thing that's common to my view and most other views is that a lot of what we know about causal reality we get through the sciences, through physics and chemistry and biology, human sciences, as well as the natural sciences. There's a vast amount that we know and we agree about that stuff. Maybe we don't know it firsthand, but we largely agree about the content of mathematics. We for example, agree about classical physics and how it applies in the classical domain. We agree about chemistry and the periodic table and what we know about chemical reactions and so on. There's a vast amount of stuff that I think of as being part of the view, but it's also part of every other view as well. It's a positive view about everything. So could we sum up like this? Metaphysical naturalism implies atheism, that there are no gods, but the reverse isn't true, that atheism doesn't imply metaphysical naturalism? Yeah, that's certainly correct. There are plenty of atheists out there who don't accept naturalism. 
Yeah, and in the popular mind, you shouldn't confuse atheism with irreligion. If you're a naturalist, you're going to be irreligious with respect to some kinds of religion, but you might possibly have some other kinds. Yeah, that's right. And maybe I'm wrong about this, but I think that there is a kind of tendency for atheists to be more sympathetic towards certain kinds of Buddhism than they are towards other kinds of religion. Yeah, that's certainly true, I think, in the last 150 years or 120 years. Absolutely. Dr. Oppie, surely a majority of professional philosophers nowadays are naturalists, and most often, if you ask them why they don't believe in God, they'll reply with some version of an atheistic argument from evil, that the sorts of evils we observe should count as strong evidence against the existence of God. Are arguments from evil to atheism important in your estimation? I think that's an interesting question. I'm inclined to think, and I spent a bit of time arguing for this in various places, that the significance of arguments from evil is greatly overestimated. If I'm making a case for atheism, I'm not going to rest a lot of weight on considerations about evil. At the start, it's important to distinguish between attempts to show that theism fails by its own lights, that it's somehow or other inconsistent or self-defeating, and attempts to show that some competing view, say naturalism, is more theoretically virtuous than theism. So overall, it's a, it's a better theory. I don't hold out much hopes of running an argument of the first kind, but there are still some people, I think, who would try to run a logical argument from evil, who would try to argue that somehow or other there's just an inconsistency between standard theistic teachings and some fact about evil, that there's evil or that there's horrendous evil or something like that, and you just get an inconsistency. That's not a view that I've ever defended, but there are some people who want to go that way. And that means that there is a certain importance about considerations of evil because there are people that want to run that kind of argument and you should think about it, even though it's not a kind of argument that I want to run. I do think that there's something puzzling there. There's a kind of a reasonably deep puzzle, but I don't think that it's a kind of decisive consideration. It's something that I keep coming back to and thinking about, which is about creation. Why, if things were perfect to start with, which they were because they're, I mean, I'm now going to suppose that we're perfect being theists, right? So in the beginning, there's just a perfect being. So what there is is perfect. Everything's perfect. After creation, imperfection arises. There are people and they start making bad decisions. How can you make sense of this transition from perfection to imperfection? Why does it happen? I mean, why would a perfect being do this? That seems puzzling to me. I don't think that it's by any means a decisive consideration, but I also not sure that I could see myself finding some acceptable way of thinking about that. I guess there's sort of a standard line that may go back to 
I don't know, it might go back to the time of Plato, where if there's a perfect being, if this perfect being is going to increase the goodness by making something else, then that something else will of necessity be less than perfect. It depends what you value. Mm -hmm. If you think that the best state is one where there's just perfection, we're not worrying about amounts here. We're just worrying about the balance of perfection over imperfection. That's only going to get worse when you make this transition. It may be that there'll be more good, but there's also going to be more bad. Why is it better to move to that state? Why wasn't it better to just stay in a state where there was no bad? And as I said, I certainly don't think that this is a decisive consideration. I also don't think that there's nothing to the thought that it's still worth doing work on arguments from logical arguments from evil. In a way, what I just talked about was logical arguments from evil, but there's mm -hmm. also the uh, evidential arguments and the question about how if you're comparing naturalistic and theistic worldviews and you're thinking about the various bits of evidence and how each view explains that evidence and what resources they appeal to in order to do the explanation, whether there's some advantage that goes to one side or the other. So let me just step back for a bit and talk about the way that I think about assessing the theoretical virtues here. On the one hand, a good worldview minimises its theoretical commitments. Everything else being equal, the view that's less ontologically or ideologically or theoretically committing is better because if everything else is equal, you've got no reason to believe in the additional things. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, a worldview is better insofar as it gives broader and deeper explanations, right? Mm -hmm. There's this goodness of explanation. As is familiar from the philosophy of science, these things trade off with one another. And so there's this question about what's the best overall view. So now if we're thinking about, say, the distribution of goods and evils in the world and we're thinking about what theism and naturalism have to say about those things, if it turns out that there are some particular postulates that theists make in order to explain the evils and the distribution of evils that there are in the world, there's no corresponding postulates that naturalists have to make then insofar as we're just thinking about evil, it may be that there's some small advantage that goes to the naturalist. But whether in the broader scheme of things that amounts to anything depends upon how this trade-off with respect to commitments is managed with respect to all the rest of the evidence. So even if it's true that, for example, let's suppose you're a certain kind of theist and you think that the way that you explain natural evil is by appealing to fallen angels. So there's this bit in your ontology that's just not there on the, the naturalist worldview, right? So if everything else was equal, you'd be losing. But whether everything else is equal, you can't decide until you go and look at all the rest of the evidence. From the standpoint of what I think is the interesting question about assessing the theoretical virtue of the two sides, it may be that there's some small advantage that goes to naturalism in connection with evil. But the interesting question doesn't lie there. The interesting question is about, okay, when we take everything into account, how does it shake out? That's why I think that considerations about evil are just not that important. 
Dr. Oppie, it seems undeniable that naturalism is a simpler worldview than Christian theism, in that the latter presupposes many types of events and entities over and above those acknowledged by the former. You just gave one example, which is belief in demons. Another example would be belief in the Trinity. I was wondering if you could read us a part of what you say in the chapter in this book and then comment on it. When we compare naturalism with Christianity, it seems that the doctrine of the Trinity adds significantly to the ontological and ideological costs of Christianity without leading to any improvement in the explanation of data, that is, of claims that are held in common by naturalists and theists. Okay, so I should explain the last bit of that. When we're comparing two theories, we compare it against the set of data what should we take the data to be if we're interested in this dispute between naturalists and theists? I think that the way to divide things up is to treat anything that's in dispute between the two parties as theory and everything that they agree on as data. And as I noted before, that means the data is very extensive because pretty much everything from science turns out to be data. They're kind of broad views about human history and so on, that all turns out to be data as well. Okay, so that's just explaining the last bit. What do I think the costs associated with the Trinity? Well, there are lots of views about the Trinity. I'm going to work with a particular one for the purposes of this example. So I'm going to think about what I think of as Aquinas's, or roughly Aquinas's, a kind of high medieval view of the Trinity, I may get this wrong, both in what I say about that view and about the Trinity in general. But <laughs> With Aquinas on the Trinity, I think everybody does. <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't have said Aquinas. I should just say a kind of generic medieval view. But in any case, given that I'm speaking to someone who really has expertise about this, uh, things may go sadly wrong. So I'm thinking of a view which in its summary form says three persons and one substance. So we go back to the, I guess, to the creedal formulation at the end of the fourth century. The, the question that I want to ask about this, I mean, there are many questions that you, that you might ask is, okay, what do you mean by person here? Mm -hmm. For Aquinas, this is kind of tricky. Sorry, and not just Aquinas, but there's plenty of other people because there's a familiar use of the word person that we can, in some ways, we use more or less interchangeably with human organism or something like that. Right. So you're a person, I'm a person, there's lots of persons. Mm -hmm. And there are certain characteristics that we think make it appropriate to call things persons. There are a lot of views about personal identity and about what's constitutive of being a person. I'll think about it in terms of things like being able to remember what you did, perhaps being able to talk about things, so being a language user, having certain sorts of conceptual equipment and so on. Mm -hmm. Now, Aquinas doesn't think that God's a person in that sense. Mm -hmm. When he's using the word person, he's using it in a, I don't know whether this is quite the right term, but in an analogical sense, perhaps. But anyway, what he's doing when he's using the word person is adding an extra bit of ideology in his theory. The idea that he's operating with isn't the standard idea of person. It's a different idea that's somehow related to it. Right. That means 
that in his theory there's an extra bit of ideology and he's also thinking that the ideology is instantiated, right? It's instantiated with respect to the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And so that's what makes his theory of the Trinity more committing than a corresponding naturalist theory, even allowing for the fact that the naturalist doesn't believe in God to start with. There's some extra commitments that are coming in here via the way that Aquinas is thinking about the Trinity. Now, what does thinking about the Trinity in this way buy for Aquinas? What's the advantage of having this extra machinery? Mm-hmm. That's an interesting question. From the standpoint of assessing the theories, what's the evidence that we're trying to account for here? What explanatory advantage and where is it going to come up? What explanatory advantage are we going to get? Where is it going to come up by adding this extra ideology? Well, he's probably going to say the uh, the various truths of divine revelation and so on, but of course that wouldn't be part of the common acknowledgement right. between the two parties. What will be part of the common acknowledgement is things like the actual content of Scripture. So there's a bunch of words in this mm-hmm. document. And also there will be the history of the development of the concept of the Trinity. So there's a debate about the extent to which you can actually find a doctrine of the Trinity in the New Testament, right. in the words as they're written. Christians often think, well, it's, it's sort of implicitly there or it's prefigured there or something like that, mm-hmm. but it's not explicit. And then we have this long development. I mean, it doesn't really get started, I think, until the second century and kind of terminates in the fourth century where, to some extent anyway, terminates in the fourth century where you get a kind of idea about what the rough contours of the orthodox conception of Trinity are and the ways in which sort of modalist heresies on the one side and social Trinitarian heresies on the other side are going to be kind of warded off. Yeah. And then the question is, so what's the best way of accounting for what's actually written in the scripture and what we know about the history of the development of the idea of the Trinity? Because those look like data that, I mean, that's data that clearly does need explaining. This is a matter for judgment. I don't expect you to agree with me about this, but it seems to me that the various extra bits of ideology in Aquinas's worldview are not helping with the explanation of that data. They're not giving you a better explanation than the kind of explanation that you can expect the naturalist is going to be giving at this point. Yeah, something in terms of human speculation, I assume, and just yeah, yeah, sort of yeah. imagination. Yeah, and things like that. Now, this is obviously part of a much wider question because there's a whole question about the explanation of the existence of the New Testament and the content of the text as it's written and then about various events that occur in history and whether you think that God's got some involvement in them. For example, the decisions that are made at the various councils where the interpretation of the doctrine is being sorted out and so on. Mm-hmm. But you can see that the naturalist verdict is going to be there's some extra ideology and ontology here, and it's not actually improving explanatory power, explanatory depth, and so on. I don't expect that Christians are going to find what I'm saying about this persuasive. I'm only saying this as a way of trying to make intelligible to them what this opposing point of view is. It seems to me that all of this is kind of matter for judgment, and there's a whole other part of my view where I say, you know, reasonable people can reasonably disagree in the judgments that they make about these kinds of questions. 
Dr. Avi, I wanted to ask you about something else in your chapter in the book, Four Views on Christianity and Philosophy. In part of it, you explain that in your view, naturalists should commit to what we might call a humanistic ethics. That's my term, not yours. An ethics that centers on human flourishing as social, rational, and moral beings, kind of like we see in Aristotelian philosophy, which you do mention. Doesn't this sort of humanistic orientation fit better with theism than with naturalism? And what would you say to your fellow naturalists who don't share this moral orientation? I think these are good questions. The Aristotelian views about ethics and indeed the kind of Aristotle's philosophy more broadly was sort of married to a kind of Christian theology in the Middle Ages. I mean, Aquinas was one of the people who played an important role in this. Mm -hmm. In Aristotle's philosophy as it stands, there's a kind of teleological dimension that seems to fit very nicely with the idea that that teleology comes from God, that the teleological ordering is the result of God's work. Mm -hmm. There are a bunch of things to say about this. One is, Although I'm no Aristotle scholar, I don't think that Aristotle was a theist and I don't think that Aristotle thought that this teleological dimension actually tied back to a god of some kind. I'm happy to be brought more up to speed about that. A second thing to say just very quickly is that there are lots of contemporary virtue ethicists who do look back to Aristotle for some kind of inspiration who are atheists. And I'm thinking that um, Philippa Foote, Rosalind Hursthouse, Christine Swanton, Justin Oakley, there are lots of people who've thought that you could just take over parts of Aristotle's philosophy and leave other bits behind. In particular, I'm guessing that those people think that you just abstract or throw away the teleological dimension that's kind of infused everywhere in Aristotle's philosophy, but you keep a whole lot of the stuff that he says about virtue that you think of as being independent of that teleological dimension. I guess that's part of the answer. What do I say to naturalists who don't share this enthusiasm for virtue ethics and for the idea that there's a story that we can tell about human flourishing in which virtue plays a significant role? So you might say, this is very rough and I'm just making it up on the spot, that flourishing is a matter of having good enough things your way and making enough of whatever does come your way, where the making enough requires that you behave virtuously in various kinds of ways so that virtue would come in. But there's no suggestion that there's a kind of overarching teleology that particular human lives have a particular purpose that's sort of set in some external kind of way and so on. What do I say to the people who disagree with me? But what I say is I disagree with you, but philosophy is full of disagreements about all kinds of things. I said back at the beginning that there's lots of stuff that naturalists don't agree about, and I mentioned in particular about ethics. So there are some people who call themselves naturalists who are kind of eliminativists about ethics altogether. I don't care much for that. Uh, there are some naturalists who are, going to, who are consequentialists of one kind or another, I think consequences are important, but I don't think they're the whole story about ethics. There are some naturalists, maybe fewer, but there are certainly some who are deontologists 
again, I think that there are important truths in some parts of deontology, but I don't think it's the whole story about values, morals, ethics. As in other areas, I'm quite happy to think that we can reasonably agree to disagree about a whole range of things. I haven't talked about this so far, but I think of philosophy. What really characterises philosophy is that it's an area where there just isn't any such thing as expert agreement on answers to questions and there isn't even any such thing as expert agreement on methods that we should use in order to try and answer those questions. So we just expect, or at least I just expect, to see disagreement all over the place. That's the nature of philosophy. Once we've got to a position where there's a kind of justified expert agreement on answers to questions, we're no longer in the domain of philosophy. We've got something that was once philosophy, like natural philosophy, which is now physics and chemistry and biology. Yeah, this is one of the really interesting things in the book. I mean, clearly some of your interlocutors have a different idea of what philosophy is and is supposed to be. And your view, it's kind of everything but fields where we can come to a pretty strong sense of agreement. Right. It's It's got to be something more than just coming to agreement, because after all, we could come to agreement for reasons that had nothing to do with the intrinsic merits of sure. views. Yeah. So, so that's why there's something about experts and recognition of experts and, and things like that that has to go into this as well. But having said that, yes, that's roughly right. Every discipline still shades into philosophy. At the boundary of physics or chemistry or biology, there are still questions that are philosophical questions. And that's kind of reflected, I think, in a good way, in the way in which the discipline of philosophy has evolved so that people working in those areas these days tend to be people who know a lot about the discipline at the boundary of which they're working. Dr. Oppie, is it your view that there isn't any philosophical knowledge, or do you think that there is knowledge even while there are these irresolvable disagreements? You might think this is going to sound a bit like a cop-out, but so go back to the ancients. Think about the dispute in which the atomists were involved about the constitution of the world. You might think that there was a sense in which the atomists were right, and maybe you might think that I mean, depending upon what you think about the way that their minds were configured, that they even knew that they were right. But what there wasn't at the time was any kind of agreement. So it may be that among us, there are people who know where the truth lies on any disputed matter, but there's just no uncontroversial way of identifying who they are. And I suspect that they don't know that they know Mm. who they are. So here's something else to throw into the mix that there's something a bit weird about saying or thinking P, but I don't know whether P. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's a kind of Morian paradox there, or maybe in the offing or something like that. So I guess we're probably all inclined to think that where we believe things, we know them. When I believe that P, I think that people who believe that not P are getting it wrong. If I didn't think that, I wouldn't be what someone who believed the P. Yeah, at least with a very firm and solid belief, sure. One thing I do think is that it's not the case that knowledge requires certainty. We talked before about the common sense understanding of the term atheism. I think that there's a sort of common sense understanding of knowledge on which you don't know something unless you're certain of it. 
I'm inclined to reject that way of thinking about things. I certainly think that in philosophical matters and also in matters about politics, religion, areas like that, a certain amount of doxastic humility is a good thing. And I think of that humility as going along with not being too insistent on the certainty of your own views. Yeah, I think a lot of philosophers would be sympathetic to that. I would suppose that probably the three Christian philosophers that are in this book, they would probably say that they know that God exists, although they're not certain about it. Would you say that you know your atheism but aren't certain about it or your naturalism? There's lots of elements of the view where I am inclined to go one way, but I would be hesitant even to say that I was very confident that it's right. So let's take one example. Think about natural reality and think about its origin, assuming that it's got one. Mm -hmm. So I think that there probably is a first causal state of natural reality. And if you push me, I guess that the most plausible hypothesis is that it's necessary. That initial state is necessary. So every possible world starts from that same initial natural state. Hmm. But that feels to me like it's the best answer, but I'm not in any way confident that that's the right answer. There are other possibilities here. There could be an infinite regress, and there are some people who think that. It could be that the state is just brutally contingent, right? There's no explanation for it. There are naturalists who think that as well. There's a corresponding dispute among theists, though perhaps there's a majority opinion in the theist case. There are some people who think that there's an infinite regress of divine states. There are some people who think that there's a kind of initial divine state that's contingent. God exists of necessity, but God's initial state, which is the creative disposition that God's equipped with, Mm -hmm. the contingent could have been different. In different possible worlds, God creates different universes because the initial state's different. And there are people, Leibniz is an example, I guess, who think that God's initial state is necessary. There's only one world that God can make, the best world. I would have thought a naturalist would say that there isn't anything that's necessary. I mean, because your uh, initial state, it would be like the singularity or... Yeah, something like that. the, The first bit of the Big Bang, basically. Okay, so so let me give you my view about modality very briefly. I think that all possible worlds share an initial history with the actual world, and where you get divergence in the histories, it's only because the chances play out differently. If there's such a thing as libertarian freedom, then libertarian free choices count as chances for the purposes of this conversation. Mm -hmm. That's all the possibilities that I think there are. If there's an initial state, it's going to fall out of this view that it's necessary, right? It couldn't have been otherwise. This view strongly divorces this metaphysical modality from anything to do with conceivability or imaginability. I'm kind of rejecting a lot of what goes on in contemporary analytic philosophy where people think that they have intuitions about what's possible because they think about cases and the cases seem to be coherent and so on. I want to treat that whole thing about what's coherently imaginable in a quite different way. I want to say you're imagining things that are impossible. Mm. But nonetheless, 
your imaginings are perfectly coherent. When we're mm. thinking about theories, people have got theoretical commitments to things that are just impossible. And so if you think about the dispute, as I'm imagining it, between a theist who says God exists of necessity and then, as a matter of contingency, creates the world versus the view which says the initial state of the universe is necessary, so the universe exists of necessity, though it may not continue to exist forever. That's a separate question. It's necessary that there be some cosmos. Well, it's necessary that there be a cosmos that starts out exactly as our one did. That would be the view. From the standpoint of either of these views, the other view is just impossible. Mm-hmm. Now, this is a common feature that, I mean, people recognised in philosophy of religion a long time ago when they first started thinking about modal ontological arguments. Once you've got in place the idea that God exists of necessity, the people who deny that God exists are saying that it's impossible that God exists. And so you've got this conflict about what's necessary and what's possible that's quite fundamental in any dispute between necessary being theists, which is, I think, the kind of dominant position, not, for example, Swinburne's position, but it's the dominant position, and any competing naturalism. So this is a view of modality where uh, all the talk about possible worlds is wrong-headed, or maybe it's just a possibly mildly helpful kind of way to imagine. The modalities are really grounded in particular objects and their powers. Certainly that would be part of the view. So I would be looking to ground modality in the powers of objects. You can still think about possible worlds. There's still a whole lot of world histories on this view. And you can think of each one of them as a possible world. That's Mm -hmm. just a particular way that things have gone from the initial state through to if there's an end of time, the end of time, or just on indefinitely into the future. Thinking about possible worlds remains what I always thought it was, a kind of useful heuristic. Mm -hmm. But I think that the primitive notions of necessity and possibility and talking about possible worlds is just a kind of helpful heuristic for thinking about what's necessary and what's possible. Yeah, I agree, actually. I guess we're about out of time, but uh, really appreciate talking with you, Dr. Oppie. I think you've whet our appetite for your exchange in this book and for looking at some of your other work. Thanks very much. I really enjoyed talking to you. This week's Thinking Music has been Words by Jason Shaw. Again, the book is entitled Four Views on Christianity and Philosophy. It's edited by Paul M. Gould and Richard Brian Davis. Next week, another of the four voices in this book. If you love the Trinity's podcast, please share the podcast on social media. Another thing you can do is give us an honest rating and review in the iTunes store for your country. You can support the podcast by giving us a one-time or a monthly donation through PayPal. Just look for the orange buttons on the right side of any blog post. Lastly, make your voice heard. Give us a comment on the blog post for this episode. Or join our very active Facebook group at facebook.com groups trinities. Don't forget then to share, to rate, to chip in when you can, and to talk back. Thanks for listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time. 
Don't forget to love God with all your mind.